Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. The death of George Floyd set off demonstrations across the country calling for fundamental reforms of policing. Since then, activists and politicians are trying to give substance to the idea of change and reform. Democratic members of the House of Representatives are in the process of proposing reform legislation. Meanwhile, local officials are calling for different sets of reforms, including in some cases, the dismantling or defunding of the police. To discuss both what needs to be done to address police brutality and the capacity of reform more generally to make meaningful change. I'm joined by Paul Butler. Paul is a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. He's a former federal prosecutor and the author of the extraordinary book, Chokehold, Policing Black Men. He's also one of the leading scholars in the United States working on the confluence of policing, criminal law, and race. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Let me start by asking you, you're in D.C. where you teach and live. Have you been out in the protests? I had to go. On Saturday, I joined a multicultural, multi-generational, huge group of people as close to the White House as the coward-in-chief would allow us to get. What was so moving was the spirit of the crowd. People are fed up. I'm hoping that this is different. This is the movement and not the moment. But unfortunately, I've had that hope before and been disappointed. You and other people of our generation remember the L.A. riots, and then we remember Ferguson, and then lots of other specific events. Eric Garner's death, of course. 
which is one of the things that inspired your book with the prescient and terrifying title, Chokehold. Do you think, in fact, that the feeling that a lot of people have right now that this time is different with respect to reform is probable? I think you posed the question perfectly. I think the feeling that people have is different in the sense that many people now understand the scale of the problem. This week, we've seen countless acts of police brutality when they're policing marches to protest brutality. It's almost like they can't help themselves. So I think that now people get it. People understand. But what folks may not understand as well as they do the problem, the barriers to challenging, the barriers to transformation. What do you see as the greatest barriers to transformation, starting with the reforms that I would say are kind of concrete reforms, anti-brutality reforms, reorganization of police departments. We'll come later to the more grand reform suggestions that some people are making about defunding and abolishing. But starting with the ones that I might call the kind of the more low-hanging fruit, what are the primary barriers to those going into effect? Well, one of the biggest is unions and other organizations that represent police that consistently resist change, even common sense reform. 7% of the police officers in Minneapolis live in the city, just 7%. We know that when law enforcement officers are neighbors in the communities that they serve and protect, they're more invested in those communities, they're more accountable. And unfortunately, that low number, 7%, is consistent with the low numbers in many urban police departments. How do cops get away with this? They get away with it because of their powerful collective bargaining organizations and other groups that represent them. It's not just with residency requirements. Virtually every proposal for reform gets squelched by these all-powerful organizations. What are some other barriers to reform? The Democrats propose, probably won't get adopted under the Trump administration, but they propose fairly comprehensive reforms coming from the federal level that the unions couldn't technically block, although the unions will probably oppose them. What are the other barriers that are out there? One of the barriers, well, let's not say one of the barriers, let's say 18,000 of the barriers. So there are 18,000 different police departments in the United States, and there are 18,000 different ways of policing. I'm going to be testifying at the House Judiciary Committee hearing on this bill. And one of the issues is how Congress can use its authority to help these local police departments serve and protect their citizens more effectively. It turns out that while Congress has the power of the purse, it doesn't have a lot of direct authority over departments other than by allocating funds or withholding funds if these departments refuse to be accountable and transparent. 
you know, it's this kind of traditional tension between local control and civil rights and human rights for people of color. What will the main thrust of your testimony be? I mean, the fact that you're testifying suggests that you're at least broadly in support of the proposals. Well, I'm there to talk about what I've learned in 25 years of thinking about these issues and during some of that time working as a prosecutor. So as a prosecutor, um, one of my specialties was corrupt law enforcement officers. And when I look at what happens when police officers are charged with crimes, most times those officers are not convicted. So in the last 15 or 20 years, there have been roughly 100 cops who've been charged with murder. The majority of those officers walked. The charges were dismissed or they were found not guilty. Maybe a quarter of those officers were found guilty of lesser included offenses like manslaughter or negligent homicide. So roughly 100 officers charged with homicide, roughly seven convicted of murder. We know that U.S. cops kill about 1,000 people a year. I say we know, really I should say we think, we estimate. One of the things that this bill would do would be to require the federal government to maintain accurate data about police use of force. The FBI has been supposed to do that for the last five years, but unfortunately, they just haven't. And so if this bill is passed, getting accurate data on stops and frisks, on police use of force, would go a long way in helping explain the scope of the problem and letting us take a a closer look at the race disparities that we know are there. Paul, one of the things that's been happening in the last, you know, 10 days or so is that the protests have begun to include not just calls to stop killing Black people, but also a policy recommendation or demand to defund, abolish, or dismantle police departments. Please give me your reaction to that development. When people talk about defunding police departments, there's not a consensus now on exactly what they mean. What I think of what the concern is, remember that when people call 911, often having someone respond with a gun And the power to arrest makes things worse, not better. Sometimes people call 911 when they're experiencing a mental health crisis, a breakdown in a relationship, a family problem, or a medical problem. And the men and women in blue with guns in those instances aren't the most effective first responders. So... What I think this idea of reinvesting some of the money that goes to the police in community services, in health care, in schools, I think that that's a a more holistic way 
of keeping communities safe. So the people I know who are enthusiastic about defunding police departments understand that public safety has got to be paramount. But what they also understand is their more effective ways of keeping families whole and neighborhoods secure than our current approach. And ironically, when I talk to the range of my friends who are in different areas of the workforce in the criminal legal process, uh, some of the people who most agree uh, with the concerns that the protesters are expressing are cops. Police officers are the first to say, people call us for a whole range of problems that we're not equipped to address. So I think a lot of officers, while they might have legitimate concerns about what it means to divest from the departments that are are paying their salaries, uh, I think that they will embrace the hope that there's a, a broader range of services from the state when people are in danger than just throwing somebody under the jail. Do you have any concern that the rhetoric of dismantle or abolish plays into the hands of Donald Trump, who can then tweet out and say again and again in his run for office, of course we can't abolish or dismantle the police. And the Democrats are behind that, you can say that falsely, and use that to try to win over middle-of-the-road voters who otherwise seem to be very fed up with Donald Trump, according to the polls, but who were, of course, crucially important to the election in November. I'm certain that the president and some other Republicans will look at some of the demands from this nationwide movement against police brutality and highlight some of those demands to suggest that they're extreme or anti-cop. That's not new. For the last 50 years, almost every presidential candidate has exploited anxiety about law and order. The subtext is anxiety about African-American men and Latino men. And sometimes that's actually the text, not the subtext. So the fact that the president will make some of the demands political and a campaign issue is to be expected. We know that Donald Trump has already won the white vote. Statistically, most white people are going to vote for him. That's been true of every Republican candidate since the election of JFK. And so rather than worry about kind of the white body politic as a whole, where I'm focused is that 43, 44% that the Democratic candidate has to get in order to win. And when I look at who's marching, one of my African-American buddies said to me, almost as a critique, that he'd driven by one of the protest rallies in D.C. and most of the people 
he saw most of the protesters were white. I think that's a really good thing. Uh, I think that now we're assembling on this issue the kind of broad-based coalition that we need to create change. And so just like in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, when a lot of people from the faith community, a lot of people from labor unions, a lot of people who were in allied movements like the uh, women's movement, the LGBT movement came out. Uh, I think we're, we're seeing that now. So that 53, 54% of white folks who just don't get it or who aren't concerned or who think that basically the victims of police violence deserve what they get. No, we're not going to reach them. Uh, but I think that there are many other people of goodwill who will rise to this occasion. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
there's a lot of talk among white liberals about what the right way is to show support for Black Lives Matter, showing respect for the leadership that BLM has taken and respect for African-American voices while simultaneously expressing support and connection. Do you have a, a view on what the right approach is in that subtle balance for white people who are supportive of BLM? I have a bunch of ideas. So in my book, Choco Policing Black Men, I suggest a, a range of things that folks can do. So it can be as simple as contributing to a bail fund. It could be coming out and joining a march. I have a, a bunch of students who are future lawyers and have this future lawyer uneasy mix of, of wokeness and professional ambition who ask, should I go to a protest? And I unfortunately told one student yes about the protest in Lafayette Square last Monday. I told her as long as she followed the rules and left before the curfew, she'd be fine. As the whole world knows, that turned out not to be true. But I do think that showing up, that, that makes a difference. And, and particularly for people who aren't of color and for people who aren't Black, to show that you understand that this is one of the most important human rights movements and civil rights movements of our, of our time, that makes a huge difference. And that same section in my book uh, have a subsection called For Runaway Slaves Only. And that is about this, this question I ask myself sometime, like, back in the day, what would I have done? During slavery, I hope that I would have been a runaway slave or been one of the enslaved people who led an uprising. Reality is that most people, including most enslaved people, didn't do that. And then during the civil rights movement, I hope that I would have marched with Martin or, or took it to the streets with Malcolm. And the reality is most folks, including most African-American people, didn't do that. And the movement for Black Lives, uh, the question is, if you want to know what you would have done back in the day, ask yourself, what are you doing right now? And so I think that's a question that, that we all need to ask ourselves uh, no, in terms of the work that we do, sometimes I wonder, like, the day after Korematsu was decided, well, what was the conversation like in the Georgetown Law Faculty Lounge or the Harvard Law School Faculty Dining Room? So I think we all want to rise to this occasion. We all want to want to meet this moment, you know, subject to our own kind of personal capacity. And so for runaway slaves in this context, again, you could talk about abolition. You can practice civil disobedience. You can, you know, be a leader in the transformation that we need. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, in response to your point about how did law professors, you know, our job respond probably most didn't say much. There was a famous Law Review article that came out almost immediately called something like the Japanese internment cases, a disaster. Um, so there, there, were, there were some voices saying, you know, this isn't right. 
But I think the mainstream, as you say, had the view of, you know, loyalty to the Roosevelt administration. And indeed, that was true of the liberal Supreme Court justices who decided the Korematsu decision. The FDR appointees were trying to be loyal to the president, and they also believed mistakenly that another case decided at the same time, called Endo, would effectively close the internment camps. And they said, well, you know, pragmatically, it'll be fine. So yeah, I mean, the point you're raising is, is very powerful. It's extremely powerful. If we want to know what we would have done then, <laughs> the question is now, what, what will we do now? Paul, what am I not asking you that I should be asking you in this moment? Is reform enough? And the answer is no. So when we think about different expressions of exactly what the problem is, I think people have four kind of competing ideas, maybe some overlap. Some people say the problem is his brothers. It's the way that we perform masculinity. If we would just pull up our pants we wouldn't have to worry about being stopped and frisked or shot by the police. Some other folks say the problem is under enforcement of law, and there the remedy is stop and frisk more law. The third framing, I think, is the one that has the most reach. It's the liberal idea that the problem is a relationship thing between African-Americans, communities of color, and the police. If we were just try to see each other's side. It's almost like we're caught in a bad marriage and we just have to come together. There, the remedy is things like body cameras, pattern and practice investigations of local police departments, better training. This is the liberal frame. And then finally, some folks diagnose the issue as white supremacy. And mass incarceration and Brutal prisons and violent policing are just symptoms. And the concern there is if you just fix the symptom, you're, you're not treating the disease. So even if we could make the police do better, then it's just going to mutate the way in this telling uh, white supremacy devolved from slavery to the old Jim Crow to the new Jim Crow. So when I think about my experiences as an African-American man, as a prosecutor, and as a scholar, I'm most persuaded by that last critique. So I think we have to think beyond reform. I think reform is hugely important because what reform means that in the short term, the police kill fewer people and they beat up fewer people and they arrest fewer black and brown people in situations in which they wouldn't arrest white folks. And so reform is literally life-saving. But at the end of the day, I think we have to think more broadly about transformation. I want to close by asking you about that grand problem, which can be called white supremacy, and then systemic racism, I think, could be described as the application of the idea of white supremacy. White supremacy is the idea and systemic racism is the consequence of that in the, in the real world that we actually live in. I know a lot of people who are sympathetic to that conclusion, I think I am myself, and who really worry about what that means for the reform effort overall, because they think that situational reforms are good, they're desirable, but they're just depressed about the fact that 
years after the civil rights movement, we're still not that close to even a set of proposed solutions that would seem to remedy this, that even reparations would not potentially have the capacity to make the structural and systemic change to shift racial equality in the United States into something viable and real. What do you say to that kind of concern that sometimes in some people's minds veers into pessimism? I get it. I'm frequently pessimistic myself. What I'm encouraged by is kind of the creativity I see, the energy that I see in this moment that's making me pessimistically optimistic. Sometimes I get almost corny. Um, I get, you know, proud of, you know, what Black folks have been able to accomplish in this country, how much we've given in terms of culture, science, government. We're the people who invented jazz and hip-hop and rock and roll and gospel. And then I go all American and think, well, gee, this is the country that gave the world the World Wide Web and Amazon and Google. And then I think, well, if we ask, what is it that we expect the criminal legal process to do, which is to keep us safe and to make people who've caused harm responsible? Surely we can find ways to do that that don't involve cages, don't involve the police pointing guns at people, that don't result in the U.S. having 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's image. I just think we can use our creativity, our ingenuity, our know-how to come up with better ways to be safe. What, what I think is, you know, the most tragic, one of the most tragic words on a 10-minute videotape full of tragic words the videotape of the police crushing the life out of George Floyd. Some of the most tragic words come from a bystander who, as he's watching, says to the cops, he's human, bro. But to these four officers, Mr. Floyd was not human. And when I think, how do you deal with that problem? Right? How do you deal with policing that seems designed to enforce the dehumanization of Black folks. Then I understand the problem is much deeper than our criminal legal process. But I have to hope at the end of the day that what Martin Luther King said was right when he said the moral arc of the universe leans towards justice. I have to hope that that's right. Paul, thank you for your clarity and your voice. And thank you for being crucial to the diagnosis and also for being part of our efforts to find a cure. Thank you for devoting your podcast to this important issue. It's always a pleasure, Noah. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Talking to Paul, I walked away with the sense that I always have in talking to him of being in the presence of an extremely clear, rational, analytic thinker addressing some of the most intractable and terrifying problems of our times. Paul is also a powerful moral voice. One crucial thing I take away from my conversation with him is his statement that if you want to ask yourself, what would I have done during slavery? 
what would I have done during the civil rights movement? You can answer that question by looking at yourself in the mirror and asking, what am I doing now? Make sure to follow Paul's testimony before the Judiciary Committee. We will continue to follow the pressing question of police reforms in policy and in principle. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zoe Wynn, and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And one last thing, I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter about this episode or the book or anything else. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you on the hunt for a new home this spring but don't know where to start fisher homes is your solution your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space start your journey by selecting your ideal home site like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans bring it all together at our lifestyle design center let fisher homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.